17th Athletic Director for Mississippi State University, John Cohen. Chris, welcome. Appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to, to be with us on the podcast today. Um, you know, I, I immediately, people ask me all the time, they, they say, you know, what, 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 how's this experience for you? The baseball team won a national championship. Or, and I immediately go back to my baseball background, Chris, which is, well, that was great. It was an incredible experience, and it was fun to be, you know, a small part of it myself. But now, now you go, what, what's next? And what's next for you is you and your guys get on the road, and you and your guys are putting together a class. You're trying to manage a very difficult roster, as it is for everybody. If you don't mind, tell, tell the folks immediately what you got into the minute you got back to Starkville. Yeah, it's um... – you know, it's a whirlwind because you don't even, you know, I just, I just got back from vacation this week. So it's, I feel like I got to enjoy it a little bit, but when you get back two days later, three days later, our guys are on the road. I mean, I still, I've seen Scott Foxhall maybe one time all summer and Jake Gotro probably for the second time this week, just getting back into the office. So our guys immediately, they run out and they recruit all over the country. You're actually a couple weeks late. You're following a lot of other programs that are out there recruiting. And then the draft hit. You know, the week we got back, we had the draft. And the hardest part about our jobs is is roster management. It's the hardest part of being an SEC baseball coach and any coach probably. But ours is really tough fighting through the draft, through your own team with the team coming in, the players coming in. And then we had kids show up for summer school that Friday also. So we had a good group of kids come in. So it's been really hectic, but it's been a fun hectic. Um, you know, we really haven't had a lot of time to digest the national championship besides the fact of, you know, our fans being so excited, and we're excited too. Our team's excited, but we're preparing now for a new season. So trying to switch that focus a little bit in our clubhouse. Yeah, you know, I was talking to Goat one week after you guys got back. <clears throat> Maybe it was a little later than that. He's like, hey, I'm on field 11 at this complex in Atlanta, and I just, it just made me go back to where – you know, those days aren't easy. I mean, you, you, you're maybe at a makeup game that's starting at 7.30 a.m., and then you love the nighttime stuff because it's not 102 mm -hmm. degrees, and you end up – and then you realize it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and you got about five or six hours before you have to do it all over again. Um, it's incredibly difficult. There's a deep appreciation. Well, for you know, it, it comes after a COVID year, too. Yeah, yeah. Where we haven't been out in a year and a half. And it's hard for the kids, too. So we're having to assess kids who – we signed on Twitter or video or whatever. You're having to run all those kids down over or that you saw over COVID. So it, it's been even a more extreme summer with that piece added in. So, I, Chris, I want to start at the beginning. And, and I've been through all this because we went through this process together when I had to find out everything about, you know, Chris Limonis several years ago when you, when you joined us here. But the Citadel, right? So the Citadel has spawned off some really good coaches. Uh, especially in baseball, but talk to me a little bit about what comprises, what is the makeup of a person, a student, who not only is attracted to the Citadel, but who can be successful because it's a military school, there's so much discipline involved. Talk a little bit about making that decision and what it was like for you. You know, I moved my junior year high school at Christmas, and so I ended up in South Carolina, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, my high school coach had just graduated from the Citadel, so I had a little bit of background. But in my mind, I grew up in Houston. I was going to UT. I was going to Texas. And uh, the whole process, it, you know, the time I got accepted to Texas, I had a room at Texas. 
And then I happened to have, and this is funny now because recruiting so early, but after my senior year of high school, the baseball coach at the Citadel came and watched me play and asked me to come down and walk on. And a legendary coach. Legendary coach. A Hall of Fame coach, Chow yeah, Port. Yeah. So he was uh, one of the best. He coached the Citadel team to Omaha. And um, so it was, a, it was an interesting piece for me. And I, I go there as an engineering student. I'm an engineering scholarship. My dad was an engineer here at Mississippi State. So uh, that lasted about three weeks. So I, I, tell, when I, I tell the story all the time. I called my dad and I told my dad, hey, dad, I don't want to be an engineer anymore. And you have to give the scholarship back. And, you, and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to coach. And, you know, he wasn't real happy with that. So, and, and now, I mean, he watches every game. He's For the last decade, he's watched every game and been a part of so many great games that we've had. But when you go from EE to PE, it's not the most popular decision with your parents. But it worked out pretty good for me. I, I get that. I had a dad who thought if you didn't go to law school, you were destined, you know, to, to end up being, you know, not very successful in life. But um, so I, I totally get that. You mentioned your dad. Walk the, the folks through who haven't heard this before. You actually, as a really small kid, yeah. spent some time, some of your early years at Mississippi State. Right. My, uh, my dad got out of high school, then he went in the Air Force. So I was born at Keesler down on the coast. My, my dad was from Gulfport. My mom was from Biloxi. So we had Mississippi ties. And when he got out of the Air Force, he came to Mississippi State. Him and my mom were married. My mom went to the W, you know, right in Columbus. And so um, she didn't finish there, but he finished here. And he, um, you know, I lived on campus. I forgot the name of the married housing over here. But my first day I was on the job here, I was in the locker room, and Spencer Price walked in. And he said, hey, Coach, uh, my grandparents and your parents used to party together. And I'm like, party? What are you talking about? And they were next door neighbors. Oh. They're two or three years here, yeah. and they they still even the last couple of years when my mom was living, you know Spencer's grandmother when she came to games she'd come and sit by my mom and hang out and talk and it was just a really neat you know conversation. But I was until like two years old I was a baby here on campus and um, then we moved away and then you know but we always had the cowbells we always had cheese delivered which as a young kid you don't understand what that is but it's a um, but it was neat to be able to come back. I, I didn't tell my parents when I was talking to you about the job because I knew they'd be too excited, you know. Um, you know, as I went through that process, I never – I didn't mention it to you at first. That, yeah, at, you know, I, I It had, took us a couple conversations till I mentioned it, and then, uh, but I never mentioned it to my mom until I had the job because I knew she wouldn't be able to handle it if I didn't get it. So, You know, even during their time, this yeah. is pre-Ron mm -hmm. Polk, I would assume. Right. Mississippi State baseball was a pretty big deal, even yeah. in those times. Yeah. Did they talk to you at all about their experience with Mississippi State baseball? Well, they would just go to games. You know, yeah. when you were here, you walked over, you went to games, you went to football games. My mom always tells a story. She would do the baby, she would babysit everybody's kids during the games that my dad would go. So my dad would go to baseball or football or basketball. My dad played football at Gulfport, so I won a state championship. And so it was he was big into sports. My mom, not so much, just supported, but that that's kind of she would always say she'd make money during the games. So, <laughs> um, so so we talked about the Citadel. The Citadel ends up in the 1990 College World Series. Yeah. You were on that team. I was on that team. I didn't I didn't play in the World Series or anything like that. But I was on, a part of that team. I was that was my first year. Um, actually, I got a red shirt for that year because I got injured. So I was I was on the team, but not a not a playing part. And it was actually kind of a disappointing year when you're on a great team like that and you know you're not playing so for me you know I came back the next year and I was a three-year starter after that but it was a uh, it was a lot of fun to be a part of I was more of a cheerleader so I remember that and I remember distinctly I'm a 23 year old fifth year senior at Mississippi State playing the College World Series and I distinctly remember 
how does the Citadel end up in the College World Series? Give that one, and then we'll leave Citadel for a while, yeah. but how does Citadel end up in the College World Series? You know what's funny is we had uh, Hurricane Hugo hit Charleston that fall, 1989. They sent us home for almost a month. Every light pole of our stadium was in the middle of the field. And we played in a pro park, so it was a big stadium. And uh, we hardly practiced. When we practiced, it was in the middle of construction. Our first game of the year, we're walking over. There were dugouts. We had to sit in the stands with the fans and come out. All the adversity. kind of felt like this year a little bit. And, uh, but it was just a tough group, just a tough group of guys. Still, some of my most, a lot of them were at the World Series this year. They all still come when any of us make a World Series. But it was a, it was a fun group. They went on a run. Back then, it was just a one regional, right? And we had, our, we had one All-American hitter, and our coach always told us, we have one really good guy that could play for them and nobody else. That was his comment. So um, we all knew who it was. And, um, but he got hot, and he got hot in a regional, and we could always pitch and defend. That was the Citadel's thing. And um, we ended up having to beat Miami, the number one team in the country, in the last game there in Coral Gables. So um, a lot of fun to be able to be a part of a great team like that. Sure. And we did not play you guys, right? We nope. Yeah, we, we actually played um... – Stanford, and we played Georgia Southern, I think. Um, and I guess that was it. But um, in, in the College World Series, when you guys were there, yeah. um, did, did it ever occur to you? Did you think uh, – because there's several guys on that team that you were going to spend a lot of time with right. even after you graduated, and one of them's Dan McDonald. Right. Did you know at that time that Dan McDonald was going to be a, a coach as well? Did you know that? No, I, I didn't. We were very close. He was a mathematics major. So you never thought the mathematics majors. Like when we finished, I was like, you should have just been PE. You know, so he, uh, he was in math lab all the time. So I didn't know he was going to coach. And then when we finished, we were the same age. But like I said earlier, we, I got a red shirt. So he coached me for a year. And we were actually roommates. So he was coaching me and I was, you know, on the team still. But we were just very close. But you knew that early part of my career coaching at the Citadel because I got a job right out that he was special. And even to this day, I always, you know, I learned so much in that transition of my career going to, to work with him, you know, so. And, and of course, he ends up going to <clears throat> Ole Miss and at Louisville, and you end up working with him at Louisville. Um, what was that experience like for you guys? Well, you know, it's kind of neat. We got to, uh, you know, Louisville wasn't a great program at that point. They were solid, but it was – I think they'd won one regional game in like 98 years. And now they're one of the winningest programs in college baseball. And to be able to do that with your best friend – and then what I got to tell people, we were at an age of our life where our kids were all young. So I had an eight-year period where all our kids kind of grew up in front of us. Um, we got to do that together. We watched each other, kids and dogs. And it was just a great – it was really hard to leave. I had opportunities to leave multiple times, and it had to be for something special. Um, but it was, it was the biggest growth part maybe of my career, just being able to go there, learn. We had a great staff. We, had, uh, we were in the Big East going to Omaha, which was really hard to do coming out of the Midwest. And, um, but it was a lot of fun. And um, being able to do that, like I said, with your best friend. It just you guys were in several special. leagues, weren't you? you yeah, were we Big went East, Big East, the American. American, and then uh, now they're the ACC. Yeah. I left the year they went into the ACC. Okay. But I got to recruit with it a couple of years, so that made a difference, you know, with a big, big league title. Yeah. So – you leave Louisville and you 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 go to Indiana, um, and, and you competed in in the Big Ten. The Big Ten is a little bit of an enigma in college baseball because there's not a lot of connectivity to the South or to the West unless yeah. they happen to come down to a, a tournament. 
how would you describe the difference in Big Ten baseball from other leagues around the country? It's it's got great players. I mean, I was I was always shocked, and I look back at some of the great players we had at Indiana, but it's not as big of an emphasis, you know, a little bit. And and you get like we had years where our better teams, the way they do scheduling in that league, you wouldn't play like. You know, you could play not not for the best teams in the league. We weren't in divisions like we are now, so it made it really tough. Probably the closest I got to winning the league was our worst team that I had there. We didn't go to a regional one year, and um, but because we played the bottom of the league, our RPI was low. So you're always fighting scheduling. You're six weeks on the road early. I mean, it just wore you down. I mean, it was a it was a tough part. But we had good teams. I mean, Indiana had gone to Omaha two years prior to me getting there, um, had hosted regionals, um, and you know the hardest part there is. They have some different rules in all the other leagues, and so you're dealing with some scholarships and over-signing type of pieces. You know, we felt like the biggest thing for us is no Big Ten team had won a league and then gotten like back in the tournament over the next three-year period because you would lose so many players and not be able to replenish. And we were able to go, you know, three out of four years. That was the most a Big Ten team had done in a long time. In your opinion, and I'm not trying to get political in terms yeah. of baseball here, but in your opinion, if the season got moved back – is there a league in the country it would affect more than the Big Ten? No, that would be the biggest one because they're the ones that have a chance. To have, they have major universities like we have here. I mean, you go to these campuses, they're beautiful campuses, beautiful schools. It just, it's not set up for the baseball piece to, to be at the highest level year after year. And they'll have good teams make a run and put it all together, but you have to hit it just right. And, um, you know, yeah, it's the same down here, but it's just a little tougher up there, just some restrictions and travel. And then the players from up there – you know, we'd lose a good Indiana school to an SEC team. And it would be, you know, be the reason, hey, I want to go down and play in the South. And I understand it. So Yeah. Um, from a recruiting standpoint, in that area of the world, in Indiana, which is a pretty darn good high school baseball state, mm -hmm. um, it seems like each state has a really different feel in terms of recruiting. Yeah. You know, it you get into Ohio, it's a very different feel. Than, and that's one of the things when I was at Kentucky I noticed. The the way things were set up in Ohio, completely different than Indiana, completely different than Michigan. Whereas in the Deep South, each state is pretty similar yeah. in, in the way they go about it. Um, talk to me about recruiting kids from the upper Midwest. And and, and is that different now than recruiting kids <coughs> in the Deep South? Yeah, much different. When I jumped in at Louisville, and we kind of got beat up a little bit because we started signing kids early. We came from, we all came from the South where kids were signing early. We went to the Midwest, and you were in the Midwest at that yeah. point too at Kentucky. And Brad Bohannon was the recruiting coordinator, and he was starting to do it too. And it was the only two programs that were really aggressive early because we were trying to get the kids before the SEC team saw them, right? And we really started a heavy – I got into Chicago. And Chicago is – I mean, I think Louisville's had like six first-rounders from Chicago now. Like we were signing kids – bringing them in, and we had this pipeline into Chicago, and we were recruiting a lot of kids out of that area. Illinois was a really good baseball state, but so was Indiana. I mean, Indiana's – what you get up there is you get physical kids, big-bodied pitchers, big-bodied hitters. Um, you, you got kids that arms haven't been used as much as they are down south because they don't play all year. They'll go and play basketball, then come back and play, you know, baseball. And so it was a different it's, – it's real different up there. You're right on that one. I mean, every state's a little different. Indiana had like the latest, uh, besides like Iowa who plays summer baseball, Indiana wouldn't start baseball until like a month after everybody in the country had started. And down south, they probably started two months ahead of them. I mean, it was just crazy how some of them do it, but they pump out a great product in the state of Indiana. Well, I just remember speaking at the Indiana High School Coaches Clinic 
and, and speaking in actually in Wisconsin and Ohio for that matter, but the organization of those clinics and the organization of the coaches, I mean, it was remarkable. And I'm not saying that, that the coaches association deep South aren't right. But I remember asking a guy from Wisconsin, he was driving me from the airport to the, uh, the convention center. And I said, you guys are so organized in the way you do your baseball stuff. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. He goes, John, when you have the weather we have, yeah. you got to be ridiculously organized. Yeah, it's probably true. I mean, that's a, you know, I know the Indiana one for years I've spoke at too. And, um, they do a great job there and they, you know, they take, well, it's also you're inside that time of year. So it's a big deal to, you know, when you're down South, you're, you're out practicing, you're working on your field, you're doing everything. These guys are, they, they don't have anything else to do besides, you know, knock it back and forth. But the, the coaches associations there are, are great. I mean, I had it in Kentucky too. Um, we had it right there in Louisville with Bill Miller and his group. And, um, it's just been a, you know, up there, they, they do a really good job in that world. All their, all their conventions and stuff. So. I, I want to just take a minute for you to, to give like uh, recruiting 101, and it's not really recruiting more as much as it is evaluation by you and your staff. I'll never forget going to watch Dakota Hudson play and saying to my, hoping that he doesn't get better. Because yeah. no, I <laughs> I, I'm watching this guy go 92, 93, the breaking ball solid, and I say if this gets just a tick better, yeah. he's going to be a first or second round and we're not going to get him. It's the only sport where you kind of hope your kids don't get ridiculously better. But how do you balance the, I'm going to go after this kid who's going to be an upper-level, high-dollar pick potentially, knowing that he might not show up and I still have to fill behind him. Give the folks an idea how that process works for you. No, it's, uh, it's tough. I mean, it's Will Bednar is a first or second rounder out of high school and gets hurt and doesn't pitch a senior year. He doesn't pitch the fall for us when he gets here. I'm sitting there talking to our coach, like, can this kid play here? And, you know, and he's, you know, obviously we know what happens after that. Landon Sims pulls, gets a bad hamstring pull his senior year of high school. Like, these things and these pieces that happen that get kids to show up, it's, it's kind of crazy. Sometimes a kid just says, hey, I'm going to school, like Kellen Clark, right? Um, wanted to go to school. Mississippi State means a lot to him and his family. And, and, but, you know, in our world, we have to recruit him twice. That's the hardest part. You recruit him once to get him to say yes, and then now you have to recruit him to get him to school. And that, you know, this past year with COVID made it really tough. Even though, you know, if a kid gets – we had a first-rounder, which I don't blame a first-rounder for signing. And even James Wood and Jordan McCants, two kids, that they got paid to go and leave. And so it tells me we're on the right kids. But like you said, there's a fine line of, hey, that kid's a definite first-rounder. Why are we wasting our time with him? And then you look up and that guy – something happens and he makes it to school and so you have to have a little bit of both you have to have a nice flexibility um this day and age you're seeing more kids go to school i think because the school setup is nice and uh you know a lot of them are sophomore eligible these days so they feel like they're going to go like jt again did you can get that piece but it's a uh, we have conversations every monday morning we have a recruiting conversation but it goes all week long just trying to figure it out you know what's crazy is <coughs> at least in my career the minute you're convinced, okay, this, this is the socioeconomic background matters. In other words, like, okay, so the, this family is an upper middle class family. They have money. The educational part of this and the college experience is crucial to them. And they end up signing a professional contract for not a lot of money. Yeah. And then you might have a kid who might be a little disadvantaged from a yeah. socioeconomic standpoint. And you're like, there's no way we're going to get this kid because their family really does need the money and they show up even after being a pretty good pick. Yeah. I mean, 
the unpredictability of this. I, I used to stress about it, and I, I tell our coaches now, I'll do a meeting with them and explain it, but the reality is it's like a crapshoot. I mean, I had one, which is like you're talking about. He played here in Mississippi when I, when I first got here. His name was Corey Ray. He was a first-rounder uh, out of Louisville, and he was from inner-city Chicago, Simeon High School. You would To get into Simeon High School to watch a game, you had to show your ID to the police officer at the gate to let you on campus and be able to go on. And I thought, there's no way Corey's going to show up because he's just too good out of high school. He dropped a little bit, and they offered like 450000 I can remember where I was standing at in the airport as I'm talking to him and his dad on the phone, and he turned it down. And he showed up at campus, and his first – 35 games, he does not get a pinch hit at bat. I mean, it was bad. We put the curveball machine. I'm like, how do we miss on this kid? And then one day it clicked, and he's batting four holes, a freshman in Omaha. And I ended up signing for $6 million. Uh, was the player of the year when he played for the Mississippi, uh, where he played down in uh, Biloxi. He played there for the Brewers there when I got there that summer. Played, we'd already been to the big leagues. But, you know, how does a kid who probably has not, family doesn't have anything turn down a couple hundred thousand and but he ended up getting like six million. So it's a there's all kind of, like you said. Then there's some families that when they have so much money they just well we're going to be fine anyway, and they'll just we want to go ahead and chase the dream. And um, the problem is is when you're not invested in pro ball, it makes it really tough to chase the dream. It has to go perfect for you. You know, especially it's not. It just seems like there's this idea, Chris, when a kid signs, their whole their entire hometown and maybe even their family believes. They're going to be in that big league stadium the next day. Yeah. And they, and you explain it over and over and over again, you know, that whatever, that Minnesota Twins hat or that oh, Cincinnati Reds hat, you ain't wearing that for a while, partner. You, yeah. You're going to have to grind for four or five years to get there. We all talk about the hat, right? <laughs> the first person to buy the hat, dad buys the hat and he walks around town and he tells everybody, my son's a Los Angeles Dodger or whoever it is, you know. Um, yeah, it's, and, and baseball changed, like through COVID – it wasn't because of COVID they were changing in any way, but they cut out so many teams and so many players are going out. They're not even going to real teams. I was happy to see like like Tanner and Rowdy got to go out to teams right now because some of them are going to spring training complexes and they're playing on field X in the back. And so there's just not enough spaces for kids. That's why they cut the draft down this past year to 20 rounds. So um, we got some guys out there playing, but you know, some of, you know, sometimes it just doesn't work out for you. So, You know, you and I were having this conversation the other day. I, I think if you list maybe the top ten players who have come out of Mississippi State, maybe over the last seven or eight years, it, it, you, when you're listing those great players, you can't talk about listing the great players without talking about a Jake Mangum, without talking about maybe an Ethan Small, and without talking about a Tanner Allen. And all three of those have something in common. All of those guys were committed to other schools before they decided – ultimately to come to Mississippi State. That's something early in I our careers. I didn't realize Yeah. That. Early on in our careers, that never happened. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. That, that's evolving and changing right now too, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's, uh, you know, it's a tough part about our business right now. And it's just, uh, well, we have transfer portals now and kids can move and, and you're just seeing a lot more of that transition. It's the life that we're in, right? Everything's instant. And um, there's so much out there now, being social media and whatever else. So it's a, it's a tough part about our business because you want you know, you know you want shoot you want to make sure your guys committed and coming and showing up. So, but I didn't. Where was Ethan Small committed? He was committed to Vanderbilt actually. Oh, wow. At one I point he so, was. Yeah. Jake was Alabama, right? That's correct. And Tanner was LSU. That's right. So they uh, 
I'm glad they played for us. <laughs> I can just <laughs> say too. that. So. Me too. Yeah. So tell me, um, we were talking about Tanner Allen. Rank Tanner Allen among hitters you've competed against and, and hitters that you've coached. Where would he be on your all-time list of college hitters? I mean, I know this sounds crazy. He's at the top. Like, it's not – I mean, he just did it every year. I know there's probably – you'd look up and say a guy hit more homers or did, but like I've told our staff just then going into the next year, just anytime there was a big run and the game was on the line, he got that run in. Like, it was – I mean, he's at the very top of my list. I mean, it's just – and I know there's guys who probably we could say more potential maybe. And I don't even know what that means with him because if you do it every day against the highest level – um, I mean, I just, it didn't matter who we faced, Kumar Rocker and, you know, or Jack Leiter or whoever, he had everybody. And the better you were, I mean, it was, and he could do it on the stage with the pressure and everything else, just nothing ever seemed to get to him. And uh, pretty special kid. I mean, it's a, he'll be a tough one to replace, and, and you don't replace him with one guy. But it was a tough nut, man. He is a, a kid we'll miss a lot. You know, this is going to really date me and who and how old I am, but, he reminds me a little bit of a Dave Magadan. Yeah. And Dave Magadan, you know, hit over 500 in college yeah. in 60-plus college games, which is remarkable in and of itself. But you just – there were not bad at-bats out of Dave Magadan. Yeah. You know, in the big moments he came through and, you know, left on left was no big deal. Um, you know, I, I – uh, I would have to put Tanner Allen at the top of the list of college hitters I've ever seen, too, because this is a modern age, Chris, and this is something that doesn't get enough play, too. Listen, when I played, if we saw a guy throwing 90 miles an hour, it was a big deal. It was a big if deal. If you see a guy throwing a ball 90 miles an hour, you go, okay, he's he's a non-velocity guy. Yeah. I mean, that's that's how things have changed. Do, do you have that same appreciation I do for what – these kids are seeing coming out yeah. of arms well, now versus when we played? You're seeing in the big leagues. The averages are all down, right? I mean, he had high average. And he, we're facing the same stuff at our level. It's just all relative, you know. And so uh, the pitching is so high, the coaching is so high to do what he did on a consistent basis against the best guys. I mean, I think if you're a pro team and you went back and said, all right, let's see what he did against Jack Leiter, Kumar Rocker, um, who, you know, uh, Gunnar Hogland, you know, whoever it could be, the great pitchers we faced – you know, he just – he's been unbelievable. I mean, he does it against the – the worst is when I don't play somebody good. And it's – you know, that's the times that you'll get him out probably if it's under velocity. But anybody who threw hard in this day and age, he, he took advantage of. And it's – you know, that's what's more impressive to you than anything is the pitching is so high right now. So you don't get to see every high school kid <coughs> who's going to be in the draft. And you don't get to see every uh, college kid who's going to be in the draft, the kids out west and everything else. But it, was there a guy cl- – Closer to being a ready-made big league hitter coming into this draft than Tanner Allen? Probably not. I think he's going to be there quick. Either he's going to be there quick or he'll never make it because it's just too good at that level. You know, if he's if he's Tanner and feeling good and feeling good about his swing, he's going to he's going to hit at every level. I mean, that now defensively maybe where he's got to do a little bit of work. But I give him a lot of credit. He for playing first base for your first two years and jumping out there and getting hurt. He really didn't play a junior year. You know, you just watched him as a year one because he's super athletic, and he just kind of – he just got better every day, you know. And I think, you know, you put him in a pro season or two uh, in the minors, that, that's going to clean up even more. And, and you're looking at a, you know, at worst a fourth outfielder, right? I mean, it, you know, that bad on your bench, that would be the worst you could project him. So, 
I know you've been asked this a million questions, um, a million times, but I'm going to ask you this question as well. Do you, are there times where somebody comes up and congratulates you and says, hey, great job, you know, and, and from the minute you go, oh, that, oh, right, that's right, we won the national championship. Has that happened to you, or is that in the front of your mind all the time? No, it's, it's just surreal still. Like, it's just, all right, we did it. It was, it was an unbelievable experience. That's the, probably the best part about it. And now it's back to work. Like, it just doesn't change for us. And it changes here. I went out of town for a little bit. And uh, to be able to walk into the grocery store and, and not be stopped, it was, you know, it was a little, it was awkward then because everybody here is so excited. You know, that's the, that's the funnest part is, um, and we've talked about it as a staff, our community, our town, our state, everybody's so excited about it. It's, that's, that's the neat piece, you know. And I've gotten so, I mean, I'm still, I got back from vacation. I got letters all over my desk. And it's all a different, everybody has a different story yeah. about my dad, about my granddad, about my uncle, about my mom. We grew up at the ballpark. I mean, whatever it is, it's just some cool stories. And to know that what we did meant so much to so many people was pretty cool, you know. And I, I think that's the, that's the piece that I keep realizing is, is the impact it had on, on our community. You know, we're all reminded of our own experiences, right? So I was fortunate enough to be at Florida and Kentucky. And, I, you know, Kentucky wins a basketball national championship. Okay, great, but I'm not sure I've seen and in its entirety an entire sports um, family embrace a team <coughs> the, the, the way our former players at Mississippi State embraced this baseball team. Yeah. Do, you, do you feel that as well? I felt like it since the day I got the job. I mean, not even just this year, but it's, it's always – it's – it's text messages, it's guys stopping by, it's, you know, guys sitting, coming to the ballpark, guys coming to practice. Um, and I'm talking about older guys. I mean, guys maybe pre-Coach Polk, you know, era that you have. And so we've had, you know, it's just, it's been like that since I've been here. It's such a tight community of, of alumni baseball players. And we actually have a lot of them coming back this fall, which will be fun for us. But um, I mean, we're in Omaha and Raphael's there every night and Paul Mahalam's I mean, just guys are everywhere and you're running into them. And, just a, just a neat group of guys, and, and you're getting messages all the time. They were, they were probably as excited as we were, you know, as, as we were out there, as just being able to see it, you know, done for the first time. Yeah, I, I think the human emotion <clears throat> you say is, man, in 89, that should have been us. We, we should have won this in 89 or whatever team yeah. you played on at Mississippi State. But all that got set aside yeah. because we collectively, W-E, we collectively – won this national championship through this team. Yeah. And that was really the most moving thing about it to me. Um, how do you capture the attention of this group coming up and say, hey, guys, w what happened uh, in June is over and we got to move forward? How do, how do you grab their attention immediately? Or do the players do that themselves? It's, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. I've got some more phone calls to make. I want to call some people who have – who've won it and then, you know, have to regroup the next year. Um, but you also need to celebrate it too. And I've kind of told myself i got to give them some time because they got back and they were either drafted and gone or they were – they went straight to summer ball. So and, – and all the fan, everybody's gone out of Starkville in the summertime. So we're going to well, – you know, we're going to spend some time and, you know, I think we get our rings on October 31st. And I think that's when we're going to flip the page. 
all the way. Now we're going to work off. That's all. W- that's when they're telling us. Oh yeah, you're right about that. So yes, you're right about that. So no, I hate to but be the skeptic. I know, but um, let's hope, right? And and then at that point, I'd like to flip the page and move it on to a new year. And the one positive about our guys, winning a championship is great for all of them and, and memorable. But then you flip it and you say, but they came here for player development and they want to move on to the next level. And I think that's the piece that's motivating them right now. I mean, we had three guys go out to Team USA. We had guys in the Cape. We had guys, we have guys back already a week early working. They want to they, – they want and, it, and the competition in our clubhouse is so high right now that – um, these guys are really having to get after it, and so that they they want to be on the next group. And so, but I do want them to celebrate it. If somebody, you know, we have something here and we do or sign or, I think they should enjoy that piece of it. They really haven't had a chance to celebrate it themselves. So we'll be around and we'll be here all fall. But once we get our rings, I'm I'm kind of flipping the page and we're moving on to the next year because it's it's hard to hang that over them. That's a, and it took a long time to get the first one, you know. So um, they need to be able to relax and play the game. So you take over a program, and I'm switching gears a little bit here, that has the same play-by-play guy for 40-plus years. You take over a program where the guy who's driving the bus has been doing it for... Too long. (laughs) 35, 40. Ever, and I'm joking. (laughs) And you take over a program where, you know, Ron Polk's now in our athletic department. You're around these guys who have seen so much Mississippi State baseball. Talk to me a little bit about your relationships with those guys. Um, I'll start with the first two, Jim Ellis and Everett. You know, my first year here, they're on your every road trip. And I'm an early morning guy, so, and they are. The older you get, it seems like you become the early morning guy and the kids don't wake up till noon. But I go downstairs, get my coffee, and we would just talk and do my radio show with Jim. And, you know, the knowledge they have of the program, the how the program's in, the, just the history was that was the one of the funner parts of it. They're both awesome. They're both as humble and, well, Jim is, and then <laughs> Everett's, but Everett's, oh, you know we love Everett, Everett's just, he's on us all the time, Jim never cracks on me, Everett cracks on me every day. Well, you know, Jim will get on Everett every uh, once Every in once in a while, yeah. but their, their dynamic and the history they've had, I, I was, you know, when I saw those guys and, and talked to them, I gave Jim a big hug, and, and just, you know, they've, they've been here like all the others too, how many games has Jim called, and to be able to call a national, I, I go back and listen to his on the last out which is awesome. To me, that's the voice of any baseball is Jim Ellis. And then Everett, you know, um, you know, just awesome for him to be a part of that too and see. And then, you know, Coach Polk, we live right next to each other. So, and I've known Coach Polk a long time. It's, it's been a, it's, it's a fun dynamic. He, the line he always gives me because he does the radio now is, you know, I've, I've never questioned you yet. You know, so I said, <laughs> I said, all right, Coach, you know, so he gives, you know, but he has a easy – demeanor which you guys all know um that's just made it very very easy you know because you can imagine and it's you know coming into a place and, and yourself included I'm I'm the head baseball coach but my athletic director is a baseball coach and his assistant is you know the godfather of the SEC and it's just been uh, it's been good because I, I can lean on him I lean on you I always will call and say hey put the baseball hat on tell me about not as much maybe my first year in the SEC it felt like a lot uh, being able to figure out those pieces but having coach Polk in Omaha I um you know, he's always joking. He's like Everett. He's giving me a hard time all the time. And I'd see him in the ballpark. We'd go in the ballpark and, you know, just, you know, I think he enjoys not being in the pressure cooker anymore. So, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> I'm going out the last day and I'm walking out and I'm get. I have my uniforms and everything and I get off the elevator and it's just me and Coach Polk, you know, and he cracks on me about something 
And I, all right, coach, see you. And I turn away and, hey, good luck tonight. This is the one, you know. And you're just sitting there and you're like, you know, you knew it meant a lot to coach at that point. And he, uh, I'm glad he was there, glad he got to be a part of it because you said it earlier in this conversation. And I, I've said it a bunch of times. There's so many fingerprints on this that, you know, I walk in and he gives me a hard time. Like, if I had a stadium like this, and I said, well, you did at the time, coach. Like, you had the nicest stadium at the time. Now, times have changed. But the reality is, is, is we walk into a, a good situation. And that situation was created by all these ball players and all the administrators and coaches that were before us. And, you know, the fan base was built, you know, long before I got here. And we take advantage of it now. And hopefully we're adding to it as we're going. But, um, you know, when you look back at it, you know, the, you know, there's a lot of different people who had a big piece of this and um, our fans included, but, you know, just, you know, coach Polk is, you know, one of them, I'm glad he had an opportunity to see that. And we'll be able to, I can give him a little more of a hard time now since we won one, because he's always wearing me out. So I don't know if he's back yet. Have y'all seen him? I think he is back. I so think. I drove we'll, by his house we'll this morning. I, had, I know he's been in the Cape all summer, so coaching our guys. So I haven't smelled any c- cigar, cigar smoke, smoke in the I building, so I, don't, I, I think maybe not. Maybe not. Hey, last thing. I want you to say whatever you want to about your staff, which in my opinion is the best staff in college baseball. You know, Goat and Cheese and Fox – by the way, they have the best nicknames in college baseball as well. Just, just talk to, just tell our fans a little bit about how much they mean to this program and how much they mean to you. Yeah, well, it's uh, you know, and staff goes so big now. You know, we have such a big group of us. When I went from Indiana to here, you know, I'm, you're looking at it, and it was that was one of the more stressful things because you're having to hire all these different positions. Um, I didn't know Jake real well. I just watched the process of that season in '18, and had so much respect for it. And then everybody you talk to talked about I, I need great coaches I need I need guys who can coach the game develop the game but it was important to me when you're inside the pressure cooker like when you're like I said it earlier you got to have people you trust you got to have people you enjoy working with you have to have people that can handle the stress of it and I feel like that's the biggest thing we did is not only do we have guys that can really coach the game we have good dudes they're just dudes they're just you know and believe me we have stress and we argue and we do but it's always we can come to a you know a common ground and talk and do and that goes for my whole staff because I have so many different guys. And from the analytics side to the operations side, Roger and those guys, I mean, we just – we have such a big group and, um, you know, we work well together. But, you know, you got Jake. I mean, it's one of the better offensive guys in the country. And our grinded out style, that's a reflection of him. Um, and then Fox, what he's done with our pitching staff has been um, – I mean, we you know, the power pitchers that we're using that we have to have in the SEC to win right now. That's what's winning. We talked about it earlier. And then Cheese being a – you know, one of our big things with Cheese is being one of the only catching coaches in the country that just coaches catchers, and you're seeing that. I felt like Dustin Skelton really improved after the year we got here. I thought Logan Tanner has become one of the better catchers in the country, and Luke Hancock and probably got the best backup in Luke Hancock, even though he plays first. But, you know, um, just he just made a real impact on our staff. But uh, I think our kids really enjoy playing here, and I think the relationship piece is so high with our kids and our coaches that – when we have stress, when we have slumps, when we have things, we can be very real. And um, like I tell every kid and I recruit them, we're going to coach you hard. You're going to be coached hard as anywhere you go. You're going to practice. You're going to get after it. But you'll be done with respect, and you'll know your coaches love you and have a respect for you off the field as much as on. And I truly feel that about our staff. Sometimes it's just about what can you do for me and get three hits and move on. But it's I, I think our kids, when they leave, they'll tell you that, you know, hey, you know, this is a – this is part of my whole life. These coaches are going to be with me for a lifetime. And I think that's what we got with our staff.
I agree. You, you know, I know people hear this all the time, but you, you live with your staff. I mean, you, you're much – you're around your staff more than you were even your own children and, and, and your wife. And <laughs> the, it, it's an incredible relationship that, that most folks don't, don't clearly understand. Yeah. Um, but, hey, that, that's all I had. I, I, I did want to congratulate you. National Coach of the Year, national championship – um, I think I speak for all of Mississippi State. Thank you for what you've done. Thanks for the way you've led our kids, and congratulations on making history here at Mississippi State. Yeah, well, we appreciate it. Like I told you after the game, we, you know, it's an honor to be here. Honor to always coach here, and um, we're looking forward to the next season because it's a uh, a new adventure now. You know, a new journey for our guys. But it's uh, you know, being able to coach here from the day one, I called it a dream job, but. It's a dream job for anybody. So we, we wake up and we never take it for granted. And, and we appreciate you, all you, you for our program, too, and all our teams. So we're looking forward to a fun athletic year. I'm ready to watch somebody else compete for a little while. There you go. All right, thank you. Thank you, Chris. Hell State.